This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, your podcast to learn all about the benefits and complications of being bendy. This is Dr. Linda Bluestein, joined today by my co-host, Jennifer Milner. Before we introduce our very special guest today, a couple of quick reminders. Please subscribe and leave a review. This really helps to grow our audience. Please also email your questions and feedback. This podcast is for you. Today, we are incredibly fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Jennifer Crane. Dr. Crane is known for her innovative approach to injury prevention and performance optimization in circus arts. As a duly accredited physiotherapist and athletic trainer, she spent her career working with athletes and artists of all levels, from recreational acrobats to Cirque du Soleil artists and Olympic gymnasts. Jen loves leveraging her knowledge on the human body to exceed her clients' circus goals, from contortion headsets to dynamic aerial work. Jen specializes in troubleshooting barriers to goals that you'll never find in textbooks. In addition to her physio work, Jen is currently training and performing in Montreal with a focus on dance trapeze, aerial straps, and hand balancing. Dr. Jen Crane, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And it's great to talk with you again today, Jen. Jen Milner. Of course, okay. as always. Fabulous. Well, yeah, you have to specify which Jen today. I know, I know. It's so exciting. Um, so, so Dr. Jen Crane, we are so excited to speak with you. You're doing such amazing work in the space of safely training hypermobile athletes and artists. And can you start out by telling us how you got into working with such a specific population as circus arts? Yeah, absolutely. So it, the only reason that I'm doing this at all today is because I stumbled upon a rock climbing gym about seven years ago that had aerial silks classes. And I walked in planning to rock climb. And then I looked up and I was like, oh, wow, that looks really cool. I think I'd rather be doing that. Um, and so I started taking aerial silks classes and really kind of just dove into all of circus. I was at a really interesting point in my career where I just finished my residency and had one of my first kind of normal jobs that didn't include working 80 hours a week at a university. So I had some extra time on my hands to really kind of get into a new hobby and I just totally fell in love with it. So I have, um, I grew up doing dance and ballet and so my background is in performing arts and it really was just a very natural fit for me to transition into um, all of the circus arts. And then once I'd been there for a while and I, um, you know, had traveled around a bit and taken classes with different coaches and um, worked with different students, I really saw how much of a need there was for a physical therapist or any sort of healthcare provider who really understood the demands of circus. Because even though it's similar to dance aesthetically and there's a lot of crossover, it's the the physical demands are just so different. And I kept seeing all of my circus classmates, um, you know, getting, getting injured or having like that nagging shoulder, shoulder issue or back issue. And I would always be like, why don't you go see a physical therapist? You know, that's what we do is help people like you 
fix their bodies so that you can perform or train or do whatever you want to do. And they would always, the story was always the same. And it was, well, you know, like I went to see a physio or I went to see a doctor and they looked at me and they tested me and they told me that I was strong enough and flexible enough and that they either didn't know what to do with me or they just told me to rest and kind of just gave very blanket advice. And I was like, man, that's like, that's a pretty big gap in healthcare. And I was just like, well, I guess like I was uniquely positioned to kind of fill that gap with my background. And um, as a physio and as an ATC, I've worked with um, a lot of uh, mainstream, uh, mainstream sports athletes. And so I had that background and had my dance background and was doing circus for a while. So I was like, well, I can think outside of the box. I'm pretty good at that. And I might as well give it a try because no one else is. And turns out I absolutely love it and there was a need and it's been the greatest, the greatest career shift definitely that I've ever made the choice to, to go with. That's fantastic. I love that story. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, and the field of circus arts is expanding so quickly. And as it becomes more mainstream for people to try things recreationally, and as circus arts begin blurring boundaries with things like Broadway, on Broadway and Las Vegas and, and such, um, how do you see circus training changing? Is it becoming more codified or should it? Do you see cross training becoming more mainstream to help athletes who have worked in such you know, specific uh, ranges of motion? Yeah, so it's definitely, that's such a good question. And it's a very, there are a lot of different components, I think, involved in that. It's definitely becoming a lot more mainstream and people are really starting to see, you know, exactly my story. Like I saw aerial silks at this place or here at this pole studio. Um, So it's definitely getting a lot more media coverage. um, But there's also, like I said, still a huge lack in healthcare providers who can help us and work with us and under, like at least understand what we need to be able to do. So from a, from a sports medicine perspective, it's, it's interesting because I, from what I've seen, it seems to be that circus arts is about five to 10 years behind dance and gymnastics. And we have a lot of the same kind of history of the art form where, you know, it's based in, kind of more of a traditional lineage of, you know, my coach learned from this coach who learned from his coach, and we've always done it this way. And this is how it will always be done because history. Um, So, and I know that that's the same story in dance and in gymnastics. We're just still going by that line a lot. And so I think just like fairly recently in the past couple of years, has there even been acknowledgement that this is maybe not the best approach to training and working with circus artists in a coaching or in um, a healthcare setting. So yeah, there's definitely, we seem to be slowly moving in that direction of, you know, normalizing cross training and talking about recovery and treating circus like a sport. I think um, it's similar to dance in that a lot of circus artists see themselves as like artists and they don't see themselves as athletes, even though they're, the demands that they put on their body are exactly the same as a high-level athlete. So I'm, I've, I've started to see this shift in mentality where circus artists, even if they're you know, recreational artists who aren't trying to perform or make this their main career, they're starting to think of themselves as athletes, and then they treat their bodies differently, and that's really cool to see. But we're slowly starting to get on board with cross-training and um, – 
and kind of the more the things that are just standard practice in mainstream sports that haven't quite made it all the way to performing arts and to circus arts. Mm -hmm. Well, and do you see in the dance world, and Linda and I have talked mm -hmm. about this before, do you see, um, as you talked about, it's always, this is the way we've always done it. And so that's why we're going to keep doing that way. Um, a resistance from the coaches in the form of, well, I had to go through it, so you should have to go through it. Um, and maybe there are, we are asking circus artists to do such crazy things, but there have to be healthier ways to get to those crazy things. And maybe there's a reluctance to seek those paths just because, well, we went through this, so it's your turn to go through this. Do you see that or is that just dance? Yeah, you know, I, I see some different variations of that. There's absolutely kind of this unspoken mentality of, yeah, circus hurts. We just got to push through it and like do it, especially like depending on what skill you're working on. There are some, some skills are just known to be very painful because you're hanging from your foot skin and that's right. not going to ever feel good, but your nerves do kind of acclimate to that. And then your body, like, you know, it's, it's kind of that it plays out that way, but there's definitely the unspoken yeah, I did it. If you want to, you know, be better, you have to do this too. But I don't see that vocalized a whole lot, which is mm. great. That's a step in the right direction. But I think that beyond that, there's also, and this is one of the things that I advocate for so much, there's definitely been more of a push to like, let's stop and think like, is that actually necessary? Okay, circus hurts. What kind of hurt? Is it productive discomfort? Or is it non productive discomfort? And really starting to at least introduce that verbiage so that we can mm -hmm. talk a little bit more intelligently about what we're feeling and if that's normal. And there are definitely so many amazing coaches out there that are really, really pushing for that too. So I think that as people see that represented, that that will start to become and continues to become more, more of the norm. Nice. And, and you just touched on, um, about the good hurt versus the bad hurt. And I think that that's such an important concept for everybody, whether you're not doing any athletics at all versus if you're all the way to, I mean, I think of circus performers as, as just being, I mean, that what they ask their bodies to do is really crazy. I mean, it's, it's, I love, love, love to watch circus performers love watching them. Um, it's amazing. I mean, they have to be incredibly brave to do those things. Um, do you have any suggestions for determining good versus bad hurt? Do you have tips that you give people that, because um, we can all use help with that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I see so often across all performing arts is I think that that mentality is really ingrained. Um, and something that is really helpful at least when I, like if I'm having an initial evaluation with a patient and I'm asking, okay, well, you said your shoulder hurts when you do this. Can you tell me more about what that feels like, what that sensation is? Um, and then, you know, I'll usually start with the, is this, does it feel like productive discomfort? Like if you keep doing it, it will make you stronger or better or help you achieve your goals faster. Or does it feel like if you keep doing that thing, it will hinder your progress. And that is kind of giving you that alarm signal from your body. So I think just distinguishing, is it good hurt? Is it a productive discomfort or non-productive? And, and, or if you keep doing it, will it help you or hurt you? Just really stepping back to those basic foundations because we've, so many of these artists have just been so conditioned to label any negative sensation as it's fine, push through it. This will make mm -hmm. me stronger. And it's almost the opposite of what we see in chronic pain patients where everything is a threat. Right. 
Right. This is like nothing is a threat, but there is physical <laughs> tissue damage that needs to be addressed. It's like they're the polar opposites. And I think that the first time I recognized that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating from a nervous system perspective and from just that kind of total systems approach, I guess, to see mm -hmm. how these artists have literally wired their bodies differently. Right. And that's, that's a big reason why Jen uh, Milner and I are doing what we're doing because we're trying to catch dancers, circus performers, et cetera, while they are still able to do their sport, their activity, their, their performing art and, yeah. and help them be as functional as possible so that they don't end up in chronic pain. Because one, yeah. you're right, once that happens, then it becomes so much harder to get the right. nervous system back to a healthy place. So, um, yeah. so I'm curious, were you always interested in hypermobility or did that come along as you dug deeper into um, working with circus artists? Um, you know, I've always been interested in it personally. It's never been in my early career. I didn't like, I, I just didn't work with patients that had that very often. So it was never something I really pursued. It was kind of also something that like came and found me and I I'm hypermobile. I have hypermobile EDS. And so this is something that like, I've been pretty lucky personally with how much it has and has not affected me, but it's really, it's like once you see someone that has EDS or hypermobility or experience with that like yourself, you can, you can pick them out a mile away and then you can right. be like, Oh yeah. Like you probably also have this. Let me do, let me talk to you a little bit more about this. And you know, it helps me look at some different things that I might not, if I didn't get that kind of visual cue, but yeah, it's definitely really fascinating to me. And I think that the most, the most fascinating thing to me is the stigma surrounding it and the type of education that these artists get from most healthcare providers is I think so much more de detrimental in general than helpful because basically when they're diagnosed most of the stories that I hear from my patients and my students is something along the lines of like yeah well they diagnosed me with this they said that I was very fragile and if I kept doing what I want to do that I will break myself so they told me to stop training and I don't know what to do because I don't have any information about this. And right. that was really what like grabbed me and pulled me in to be like, I need to like this, this is a problem. I need to talk about this and like look a little more into all of the issues surrounding this population. Right. So basically stop moving and wrap yourself in cotton wool, right? Yeah. What they're hearing. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. that's literally the worst thing that you can do for yourself. If you're the worst thing that you can do. Yeah. 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 I have so many dancers when, that who are hypermobile and when they retire, they're like, I'm just going to take a month off and just do nothing. And a month later, they're like, oh, it hurts so bad. <laughs> yeah. You have, you have to keep moving. You have to yeah. stay healthy and keep moving in a healthy way. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, you did such a fascinating study a couple of years ago, I believe it was, that um, when you were talking about the different um, impact that uh, visits to healthcare professionals would have on people. And I've done similar kinds of um, studies. I don't think I've gotten, I don't think I got as many responses as you did, or at least not as many, um, you know, really descriptive 
um, narratives from people, right? I mean, you have a really wonderful collection of these responses. I think we could do a whole entire episode, uh, you know, just about that alone. I was fascinated when you shared that information. Is there anything from that, though, that you want to, while we're kind of talking about, you know, other experiences that people have had and what led you to where you are today, is there anything else that you want to add from that study particularly? Yeah, so also I just want to clarify, using the word study is like right. incredibly gratuitous. <laughs> Thank you. But um, yeah, this is, this is a, basically like a survey that I created and put out to all my Instagram followers and my mailing list, um, asking for those who were performing artists and had a diagnosis of EDS. I just was really curious what their experience was with healthcare. Um, and I think I got mostly US-based responses. Um, but there are a few that were from Canada and from Europe also. But I was just really, I was really interested to know if people who had this EDS diagnosis, if they felt that it was something that was helpful for them, that helped to guide their treatment or gave them, or basically was it something that empowered them or was it something that was like, like a huge downer, like, oh, I have this disease, I'm fragile, like everything, like my life is over. I just wanted to know what the implications of that seeking care were um, for a lot of different reasons. But yeah, I was, I was just curious to see what, what was happening with everyone else. Um, yeah, and I think that the, the most fascinating thing or one of the fascinating things is that almost everybody said, because this is the question that I get, and I'm sure both of you get all the time, from people who are hypermobile that think they have EDS, but they're like, I don't know if it's worth getting tested. Like, would getting tested change anything in my quality of life or in how I treat this? Or do I just like kind of strengthen and be smart with everything regardless? And that's a great question, especially if we take a step back and look at a broader perspective of the current situation of US health insurance, where there are a lot of potential implications of seeking a formal diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are very hesitant to do that because they're afraid that it will give them a stamp of a pre-existing condition. And then that will, you know, alter what care they get moving forward. Whereas people in Canada actually have the opposite experience where they're like, if I get a diagnosis, that will give me access to more care. And it doesn't negatively impact the health insurance side of things. So just that I was really fascinated with. Um, but yeah, most people were really felt that the diagnosis alone was incredibly helpful for them for at least giving them, it gave them a sense of understanding that what they were feeling was valid, that their symptoms are for a reason and that there's a name for what they're feeling and there is a path moving forward. And they at least now know what types of questions to ask and what providers to go to, to get those answers. And I think that when we're just like, if we're experiencing all of the symptoms of EDS in isolation, it can be really confusing and incredibly helpless. You feel so helpless if you have all these things and you don't know if you're making them up and you know, maybe your healthcare providers are gaslighting you without trying. And it's, it's one of those really big um, mental health issues too. So mm -hmm. that was, that was one of my most interesting findings from that study, but study. <laughs> <laughs> Survey. Yeah, yeah, it was an awesome, yeah. awesome survey. And, and mm. I think that that's exactly what happens when other people start, when other people doubt us, I think it's very common to doubt ourselves. Yeah. And, and then we say, we're as, as I mean, all three of us have had dance 
as a significant part of our lives, you're used to pretending like everything's fine because you have to for the audience, right? right? So you can pretend, pretend, pretend until you get to a certain point and then you can't pretend anymore because it's the problems start to get to be too big. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what advice do you give hypermobile athletes looking for a career in circus arts? Um, do you see hypermobility in a performer and worry about their long-term ability to stay injury-free? I don't worry about that directly, but I do, if I can catch them early enough in their career, I'm like, ooh, I need to tell you a few things before you, you know, get out into the rest of the world of healthcare providers that maybe are a little bit more of the, you know, fragility narrative type. But I think that one of the things that's also been really interesting for me to see in circus and hypermobility in circus is that so many, it's exactly like you were saying earlier, where starting circus and starting any activity that has a high strength building component is so good for all of the symptoms involved in hypermobility and EDS. So I definitely, I try to, the narrative that I try to tell my patients when I'm working with them is a lot more along the lines of, okay, so we know you're hypermobile. We know you, whatever diagnosis they have or don't have, like, we know that this is something that you deal with. There are a lot of different things that you can do to help manage any symptoms that you have. And it's super important that we work on specific strengthening for circus because you have to work at your end range. And mm -hmm. if your body doesn't know how to protect you in that position, if all your stabilizers don't know how to stay strong there, then you, like other people, are at, for, at a higher risk of injury. And people that are hypermobile do have a little higher risk of that. But really, I mean, that's a risk factor I see across all of my circus patients is if you aren't strong at your end range, like you're going, you're more likely to get hurt. So I talk a lot, I usually, I talk a lot about that. Um, and I talk a lot about just kind of like what the steps are moving forward. And okay, you're going to have to prioritize a few different things, but and then I also try to spin it towards the good news is the exercises and the strengthening drills that we're going to do to get you strong at end range will also help your active flexibility. So all, like all of your tricks will look better too. So it's, <laughs> that's like the easiest thing to get buy-in is to be like, oh, you want better inverted splits on your apparatus? Great. Let's do these drills. It'll also help your hypermobility. That's fantastic. Rather than them feeling like they have to choose. Definitely. Mm -hmm. You know, what I want this or that. Okay, that's awesome. And what about your advice with um, and your approach to patients, depending on age and whether or not they already have developed some, um, you know, more persistent pain problem? How does that change your approach to working with them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that age, I mean, it depends on, yeah, it depends on a lot of different factors. But anytime there's the presence of pain, then, you know, I always want to take a second to talk about, okay, well, anytime your body feels that pain signal, whatever drills you're doing aren't going to be productive. So mm. that's just something like that's, it's not going to be the most efficient way for you to further your training right now, even though you're injured. Even if you're not training, there are still so many things that you can do to get stronger and to help rehab this. But I really try to keep hammering on that pain narrative that more pain is not always better. It's not no pain, no gain. Um, and, and depending on like how old they are or how, how long they've been in circus, that's, um, that will sometimes also change the type of education that I give. As far as recovery, especially, um, as we age, we need 
you know, more time in between training. We need to give our bodies a little bit more time to recover. And I think that there are a lot of really helpful metrics that we can use that are very readily available to us in this world of technology to help understand recovery a little bit better. So I usually just talk about that, say everyone's different. I rarely will be like, oh, you're old. I actually don't think I've ever or whatever be like you're older this is gonna be way different you know it's, it's just like everyone's bodies recovered differently and this is how you can track recovery and this is how you can tell when you know you're ready to move on to the next training day or if you need another active recovery day mm. so that's usually some form of that dialogue so I wanted to circle back to something you said earlier you said that circus has a high strength component mm. and when People, when outsiders think of the circus, they think high tricks component. Like that's what they think of first is what kind mm -hmm. of tricks, what kind of flexibility, what kind of weird stuff can they do? Um, so I love that you said that that's kind of what you start with is the strength component. But everybody wants to talk about stretching. <laughs> so how do you approach um, stretching for hypermobility circus artists, especially in their end range? Like what kind of conversation mm -hmm. do you have with them? What kind of guidelines do you give to them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it depends on if there's the person with pain or a person who's hypermobile but does not have pain. Um, I think that in the instance of if you don't have pain, I, I think that I've seen the pendulum of passive stretching swing really far one direction and then really far the opposite direction. I think that when I was growing up and dancing, we were all like super gung-ho passive stretching. Let's just, you know, sit in our overslits, be pushed. This is how it's always been done. This is how we will do it forever. And then in the past five years, 10 years, maybe I've seen the pendulum swing to the opposite direction of passive stretching is always bad. This will hurt you. This is damaging only active flexibility. And I really think that there is a happy medium. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with passive stretching, but I think that where it does go wrong is when people actually just relax completely in a stretch. I have no problem with static stretching in the absence of pain. Um, in people who are hypermobile, if they're aware of all of the muscle engagements that need to happen from their feet to their core. It's a very active position and active stretch. And if they understand that and can do that and don't feel pain, I'm pretty okay with it. So that's how I usually approach passive stretching. But of course, I mean, my main focus is on active flexibility and, and range control. So mm -hmm. I, emphasize that in all of the programs that I create with all my students, but there's, there's often a static stretching component where it's more of like a long endurance hold. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think that the pendulum is probably okay to return to the middle. And I think that most hypermobile people do need to focus way more on active flexibility and strength and control. But once they have that, then I don't see any problem with holding that position. So I want to make sure everybody heard this because um, this is something that I try to work with on my dancers. And, and when we talk about active stretching, it doesn't necessarily look like active because some people in their mind, active stretching, you're like lunging for your foot and like really working hard to reach your foot. And, yeah. and active stretching sometimes looks more like exercising. <laughs> and, right. and it's hard for me to convince my dancers that doing these exercises makes you more flexible. So will you just elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. So when I usually have that kind of 
the the patient who's like I don't I don't know if I believe this. Um, <laughs> usually, what I'll talk about is the nervous system, and I'll say, okay, well, if we think about it from a systems con system control perspective, if our body is flexible and can get to this super high end range over split, but if our body doesn't know how to control and stabilize that position, a you're going to be more at a higher risk of injury, but b you're also not going to like you can continue to stretch passively and relax into your stretches but you're not going to make nearly as much progress because your body knows that you're not strong there and so maybe you'll make some improvement within that session but typically what i see is after that stretching session if they don't solidify it with active end range control drills their nervous system just rewinds and takes mm -hmm. those steps right back so it you kind of just don't make any progress. It's not efficient. It's a waste of your time and it's, you're not doing what your body needs. So usually I, I talk about that and how it's actually way more efficient and your passive stretching will be way, you'll get more out of your passive stretching if or your static hold stretching, if you also do these active drills. I, that's great. And so and I, 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 wanted to add, I wanted to ask her to elaborate too on this one because this is so incredibly important because like this is, I just feel like this is such a hot topic. Everyone wants more and more and more, especially now with social media and all of, and all of that. So um, in terms of what that feels like or when you're talking about the drills, um, could you just elaborate just a little bit further on that just to give, so that for people who like might not know what, what is it that I'm looking for in my body when I'm doing this? Um, sorry, which part? The active, the active flexibility drills, like the end range control ones. Uh, yes, that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so with that, I usually I I talk about like a like a standing leg scale, right? So if we if you're standing and you grab your ankle and pull your leg towards your head as far as you can, um, so that's like a a passive stretch that we see all the time. But mm -hmm. if you take that position and you look at yourself in the mirror and see how high your leg is. And then if you let go of your leg and have to actively hold it there, like how much of a gap is there? If, does your leg drop a ton? If so, then that is the range that you need to work in. So mm -hmm. what I talk about when I find those specific drills is like, I usually use that as a kind of snapshot for the buy-in for like, okay, see how much of a difference that is between when you're holding your leg versus when you let it go and your muscles have to do that work. It would be nice if you could just hold it there, right? You want that? Yes? Cool. Okay. <laughs> so then, like, then we wind it kind of back to in that position, what is the, what joint or what area needs to be strong in that position that currently isn't strong and what other parts might be compensating? So, um, for example, like our low back and our low back muscles tend to compensate for a lot of like arabesque skills. If our leg is behind us and we're lifting our leg, our low back uses all or contributes a lot to that movement. But if we look at how much hip extension we can get for that position with only the glutes working, so usually I'll assess this in like a lumbar locked position or like a modified child's pose with one mm -hmm. leg back and kind of sitting on the other leg. Um, if you can have them lift their leg there and feel how difficult that is compared to that arabesque, that also tells them, oh my gosh, like I can't lift my leg at all here. Wow, my glutes are really not do. oh, okay, like I get it. And that like, I find that if I can just show them where their area of weakness is, 
that is super helpful. And then they mm -hmm. can also feel in that isolated and whatever position it is that isolates the body part or the muscle that isn't doing what we want it to for that end range control. If we can isolate that and show it to them and tell them this is what it should feel like, engage the muscle that you feel working now, that is super helpful to at least help them understand the importance of it and the relevance aesthetically. Thank you. That's a great elaboration on it. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so talking about working on strength, uh, do you approach strengthening people with hypermobility differently than people who are, do not have hypermobility? And we're, we're talking not just like a little flexibility, but, but maybe hypermobility issues or significant hypermobility. Yeah, I think anybody with hypermobility definitely needs a lot more supervision for technique in the early mm -hmm. phases of strength training. So that's something where you know, just education on, okay, you, the, when you're doing this, you're standing with your knees locked out, or when you're um, in this position, your, your wrist really needs to not be that deviated to the side here. So I think <laughs> that I find that they, they just can't get away with nearly as much of a technical fault in a basic strength exercise as someone without hypermobility. So it just, I, they require a lot more kind of supervision and understanding of what they need to be doing and why it's so much more important for them versus others. Mm -hmm. And along with that, um, do you see proprioceptive issues as well? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so, it's really hard to tell in circus because if, I'm, if we're talking about an aerialist who is an upper body dominant athlete, almost all of us have terrible proprioception, proprioception on the ground upright. So it's so mm. different from dancers where the base level of proprioception is so high in dancers. Right. We don't really have that in circus unless they're a ground acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of, it's, it's a little different, but as far mm. as upper extremity proprioception, it does seem if I had to take a, if I have to make, make like a general statement of what I see with hypermobile circus artists, their upper extremity proprioception is definitely less than their non-hypermobile counterparts. But it's also, it, it depends on what body region we're talking about because mm -hmm. it's a little bit different of a baseline than a dancer or ground acrobat. Sure. Well, and then kind of going a little bit further with that, um, how do you approach working with, um, with, circus artists who have some sort of joint misalignment. So that, I mean, that's even less proprioception, I would think, but like working with people who tendency to subluxate or dislocate, how do you approach working with that? Mm, that I think if we're talking about like a, like people who have common like patellar subluxations or something mm -hmm, like that. Or where, shoulder. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's a little bit harder, I think, to generalize with those type of people. I usually try to talk a lot about the sensation involved in like the moment or the moments leading up to that happening. Like, can you, because most people know when I'm in this position, I feel unstable. So then it's a conversation of, okay, so let's find an exercise that takes you right up to that point of the start of the unstable feeling and back off a little bit and strengthen there and get mm. strong there. And then we'll reassess at what point in the range does that feeling of instability happen? And that can kind of be our litmus test moving forward. Excellent. I love that approach. And it's very similar to the active stretching that you were talking about. Let's find that range of motion and then go right behind that and strengthen that until we can get to where we want to get to. 
That's great. And, and that's um, also that's also a lot like when um, you know people that have migraines can get auras, but they can also mm -hmm. get pre auras. And so if you can treat their migraines when they have the pre aura and not even wait for the aura, it's even better. So um, yeah, that's I love that. That's that's really really getting people in yeah. tune with their bodies and helping them identify mm -hmm. those things. Yeah. Just yeah. Hearing, yeah. Hearing the thing before the thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and I have a shoulder that subluxates all the time and that's how I try to train myself as I go right up to that point. I'm like, Oh, mm -hmm. I feel it. But then I try to work right before that point just to see if I can get it stronger. And, you know. Yeah. It's, I have the same when I, before I started circus, my shoulders were so floppy and would sublux when I sneezed, it was ridiculous. But that feeling like it's crazy how just starting aerial training when I started, like maybe six months after I started really diving into a lot of aerial work, my shoulders never felt better. My neck pain went away. Like it helped. Wow. Wow. Little issues that were associated with hypermobility that it's just, just building muscle is so helpful. Just hypertrophying muscle to support the joint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting because I think about aerials and I'm like, I can't imagine working in silks with my shoulder, but I should like push myself to try to strengthen it more. Yeah. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Sorry. No, yeah. I felt the same way before I started. So I understand <laughs> that for sure. <laughs> so um, one of the things we wanted to touch on was social media and how social media sort of affects, of affects the younger generation coming up and they see these tricks and they see the crazy flexibility and they see all these amazing things. Um, how, what, what would you say to the younger performers who are looking at social media and being influenced by it? Um, what would you say to them about it? Yeah, that's, it's interesting because I feel like it's probably the same in the dance world where a lot of us in circus arts who are on social media post the best of right. whatever we did that week. <laughs> and what you don't see is all of the, you know, the 45 minute warm up leading up to it, all of the technical skill prep, all of the times that we've worked with coaches, you just really see that end result. Um, and so I think I would just encourage people to, to recognize that and also to seek out accounts that also show everything that goes into training mm. because there are a ton of accounts like that too to talk about not only like the nice finished product, but how hard it was to get there and how much work went into it and the thought process and what that looked like. So I encourage them to just take a step back, look at the whole picture and understand that that's such a small snippet of real life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every time I see um, a dancer that I follow post a video of them falling out of a pirouette, it makes me so happy. <laughs> Because, because because my dancers need to know people fall out of pirouettes and then the next time you try it maybe you'll do seven but it's good to know that you know dusty button or whoever does not always have a great pirouette coming out and no, nothing for her specifically but just you can follow great artists but also know that what you see is that snippet and so the chance to see them fail is just for, for the good ones for the good artists mm -hmm. is that them saying well that didn't work what should I try next so I, I love that, that you encourage them to seek out accounts where you can see yourself trying, yeah. you know, and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Sure. Um, are there any trends that you have, have observed over the past few years in circus? I know you've talked about the desire to kind of 
codify things and you've also talked about seeing the pendulum for overstretching start to swing. Is there anything else that you've noticed that, um, that is happening within the circus arts? Um, from kind of a sports medicine perspective, mm -hmm. I think the most interesting shift that I'm seeing is just the, that shift that's just starting to happen where artists are really starting to take their work as athletic work and mm -hmm. just that mental shift. And once everything is kind of reframed through that lens, then I'm seeing a lot more interesting of questions from these artists. So it's like, okay, well, you, you tell me that rest days are important for high level athletes. And I think that's me. And how do I know when I need a rest day? How do I know if I'm overtraining? And now this, these, these questions surrounding that recovery and periodization, that's mm -hmm. really cool. And that's where I'm just starting to see a lot of people get super into discuss, uh, kind of like going into that realm. With, with more that. people doing that, do you see any kind of a difference in terms of injury rates or ability to heal from more minor injuries or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely surprising nobody. Cross-training is so good for everyone, regardless of sport. <laughs> shocking. And shocking, right? <laughs> just in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think circus, it's just amplified how helpful it is in, in circus because nobody's cross training. Like there's, this is not a seasonal sport there. Right. If you're a professional artist, often you're touring and you're um, like you tour year round and you get maybe a week break every few months, or maybe, you know, you have 10, 11, 12 shows a week and it's like a really grueling stretch for a long time. So if you throw in any amount of periodization at all, it's just like, in crazy how much it helps like mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many messages I receive from artists after I have the really hard conversation with them about you need to take a, an active rest week where you don't train your primary discipline mm -hmm. and you need to like focus on a like nervous system reset and mm -hmm. focus on that and then come back to training the, the thought of that is horrifying to all circus artists they just one of the popular hashtags on Instagram is circus every damn day and it's like that's just such a good example of the mentality in circus but yeah when they take their when they finally take their rest week after you know we have that spirited debate for <laughs> at least a day or two um they come back after their rest week and I get a message that says oh my gosh I finally got this skill that I've been working on for a year or oh my gosh I finally trained flexibility or contortion and I didn't have back pain or like it's always about unlocking a new skill. And that's mm -hmm. what I think is so fascinating and just really strengthens the argument and the buy-in because I have so many of these screenshots that I can just be like, look, it's not just me. <laughs> it's not just me making it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that has to be so immensely gratifying for you though, to be able to see the, the hard conversations that you're having and the work that you're putting into it bear fruit with them taking ownership of their bodies as athletes and, and giving themselves more longevity in their career. It's awesome. It's so, I mean, it's just so gratifying for me and so empowering for them and everyone's mm -hmm. happy and everyone wins. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I've had so many conversations with my dancers, like at the end of Nutcracker season, talking about that active rest and saying, you're not allowed to dance go bike riding, <laughs> go bowling, do you, something, right? Yeah. But don't dance. Just give yourself that break. Do something else. And 
And when they do that and they come back feeling better, that you're just like, yay. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's great. It's like a positive data point for them. Right. They lose all of their skills. If they take a week or two off, they're still right. going to Right. Do, do either do either one of you find resistance? I'm thinking of, of yeah, particularly for for ballet teachers, mm -hmm. maybe. But do you find resistance from other people that are involved in working with these athletes and artists when you say, take an active rest week, you know, um, off? Do you find resistance from other people or? You know, coaching depending on the the setting so in like a recreational setting if like i have a day job and i just do circus for fun but i do it like five days a week and i'm really into it those coaches usually see the problem and are like yes take the week like listen to jen do the thing um i don't see i i think it's a little different from dance in that respect there there are certainly some older school coaches that are still like will put up a fight but mm -hmm. I mean, that's I like, I'm not going to change that coach's mind. And if they've been that way forever, then the patient is really who I'm invested in changing their mind. So I kind of just let that be. And, and, you know, if I work with a lot of that coach's students over a period of time, and this happened to me when I lived in San Francisco and worked at circus center there, um, you know, they, they watch and they see me working with people and, you know, maybe six months passes and then they're like, Hey, so what do you think about this person? Do they need a rest week? Oh, and I'm nice. like, this is the greatest ever. And it's like <laughs> the long game, you know, like you have to show results because healthcare providers have a really bad name in circus. Like we mm -hmm. don't tend to, we don't have a history of fixing things quickly or helping athletes. So we have to kind of show, show that we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fantastic. And, and, and dance wise, I see, which I think you do too. It's either all or nothing. You go to the doctor that says, you know, stop moving for a month. Mm -hmm. Like put on the boot, sit on the couch, eat your chocolate ice cream. <laughs> and then in a month, that injury will be magically better, right? Yeah. Or you see the ones who are afraid to, have to stop moving. And so they're told, keep, just keep going. Just kind of keep limping through class. Do the best that you can. Adjust as you need to, but do as much as you can because they're so afraid that if the artist takes time off, they're going to lose everything else. And it's that, no, there's something in between that you can do that's going to be smarter and more efficient, and they're going to come back better. And that's the hard part for them to grasp until they see it, like you said. Once they see it, they're, they're all the way in. Yeah, for sure. Well, do you, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Did you have anything else burning on your heart? And also, um, <laughs> where can people find you? Yeah, no, I think we had some great topics of conversation for the hypermobile bendy bodies. Um, yeah, so I can be found pretty much everywhere online. Um, on Instagram is where I'm most active. My Instagram handle is Cirque underscore physio. And where else? I'm mostly just on Instagram. I'm on Facebook too, <laughs> but not nearly as much. Um, my website is CirquePhysio.com. Um, and I do, one of the things that I have um, that I offer is I have flex a flexibility program that really was founded on the principles of hypermobility, right? So do it, it mm -hmm. has all of the active flexibility drills. It's a slightly different type of flexibility assessment than we normally do in circus and performing arts where the question is, can you do a split check? Yes or no. It's a little bit more of like a physio perspective <laughs> assessment. Um, so yeah, that's also on my, on my website and yeah, I think those are all the places I am online. <laughs> so is that something, just because I know several of my dancers probably heard that and were like, 
super interested. Is that something that they can do online? Is it like an online course you can sign up for? Yeah, so it's basically like a two-in-one educational course product where you just learn things about flexibility from more of a biomechanics perspective with mm -hmm. more of my physio brain. Um, so it's that, and then it's also a assessment. So it's a guided self-assessment where they go, um, you know, they log on to their website and they are guided through all of the different parts of a total body assessment. So I look at things that um, like a lot of flexibility coaches might not look at like sciatic nerve tension or hip internal mm -hmm. rotation. Both of those things have a big bearing on um, hamstring flexibility and pike and oversplits. Um, so I look at, I take them through the whole assessment and then they submit their results. I look at the results, I look at their flexibility photos, and then I make them a customized program that they can log in when I'm done with that and just kind of follow along, um, stretch with the, with the video. So that's most of um, what I'm doing right now from a flexibility coaching perspective. That's amazing. That's a, that sounds like a great program. And I, I think several of my dancers will are logging on right now. <laughs> well, I think, well, I think it's a yeah, it's great for the dancers and the artists who really want to know more about why their body, like why they're hitting right. plateaus. It's more of a, like, what's the rationale behind this? Teach me more about my body so that I can implement these things in the future. It's definitely mm -hmm. dense. So mm -hmm. you really have to want to be, you have to err on the side of, I am nerdy and interested in flexibility. <laughs> it's all very accessible from a vocabulary perspective, but you have to want to like know a little more because it's definitely mm -hmm. an investment cognitively. <laughs> That's that, great. That, that does sound fantastic because too, if you, if you don't, even if you're hypermobile and maybe you aren't dancing anymore or doing circus anymore, and if you don't stretch, then you're going to get tighter and tighter and tighter. So I'm glad that you brought up mm -hmm. about like neural mm -hmm. tension, because these are the kinds of problems that oftentimes by the time they come to me, they're like, yeah, I did gymnastics. I did dance. I did all these things, you know, quite a long time ago, but now they're so, they're so incredibly tight. And so they go to a regular quote unquote, regular doctor or regular physio who doesn't identify them as being hypermobile at all. And right. it, it wouldn't even be on their radar that that could have been possibly a problem in their past. So mm -hmm. that's yeah. so great. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for having this great conversation with us. Uh, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, our guest has been Dr. Jen Crane, performing arts physio and travel physio with Cirque du Soleil, aerialist and dancer and flexibility coach. Dr. Crane, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Bendy Bodies podcast and for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Bendy Bodies podcast. Please visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information and to access the show notes. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders just by giving us a shout out on Instagram or Facebook and tagging at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. 
This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.